Hey, a warm welcome back to Mamas on a Mission. Season two is kicking off and this is episode one. I'm Holly, the Chief Mama of Motherhood Melbourne, and I am super pumped to be back on the mic. I've got a stellar lineup for you of Melbourne mums. They're incredibly smart and savvy. And to go a little Liam Neeson on you, they've got a very particular set of skills and they use these to help others. On this podcast, you'll be entertained by their wit, informed by their knowledge, feel connected by their story and inspired by their mission. I'd love to see who's tuning in. So please take a screenshot of this episode or a snap of where you're listening and share it on your Insta stories. Tag Motherhood Melbourne and hashtag Mamas on a Mission. I'd be super grateful as this will help others discover that there's a podcast just for Melbourne mums. Ta! First up to lead us into the season is Tina Bruce, author of Mother's Medicine and owner, yoga teacher and retreat leader at Restore Yoga Mum. In this episode, Tina shares her traumatic birth story and the events that unfolded from this experience. Tina is talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, chronic pain, feeling let down by our health system and her addiction to pain relief medicine. We then talk about how yoga played an important role in her self-healing journey and how writing the book Mother's Medicine has helped her and many other mums. Tina's incredible journey starts with birth, the birth of her child, but ultimately the birth of her intuition. She's now going to share what her first birth and life-changing experience was like. Let's meet Tina. It's really the um, the chapter one of the book is the first birth. Um, overall, the book is my whole experience of motherhood through birth trauma, chronic pain and addiction. But it really came down to the instigating event, which was um, the birth of my first child over nine years ago. Um, and it's definitely not what I expected. <laughs> so, you know, how sometimes we go in with expectations and then we are um, thrown off balance of, you know, what actually unfolded. So my approach um, for my first birth was I put all of my trust into the medical system. I thought that's the angle I'm going to take. I'm just going to completely hand over the whole process to the doctors and to the staff and to the hospital. And, um, and I was quite at peace with that because I worked in the medical industry. I had, you know, I was experienced at being in hospitals. I thought I had a lot of faith in the staff um, that knew what they were doing. Um, so that was initially my approach. So the pregnancy was straightforward. Um, there were no you know, issues with the pregnancy um, and I went into labour naturally. So I started having contractions at about 39 weeks and uh, I was just working through those at home and then at about 24 hours later, I, we journeyed into the hospital and were admitted into the hospital and I went um, through the private system and when I arrived into the hospital, the first thing I noticed was that my obstetrician was absent. <laughs> so I, I went through the, you know, the last six months um, getting to know this particular obstetrician who followed my pregnancy and 
because it was a Sunday and, you know, I got the on-call doctor and that's often, you know, that's just what happens. And I, um, so I was, I met this man for the first time um, who within five minutes like dove down between my legs <laughs> and um, I was quite confronted by it. That was my initial, you know, introduction into into the system, into um, having the baby. And from then on, he made all the decisions for me. So my labour wasn't really progressing. I only dilated about one centimetre. And that's just not what you want to hear when you're, you've been labouring away for over 24 hours. And he said, oh, you're only one centimetre dilated, so I'm going to break your waters. And I was like, okay, so that's, that's what you do to hurry things along. So he, um, he came along and broke my waters and then disappeared for a few hours and contractions kept on kicking up a little bit, but not really to the point where I was, um, you know, struggling. I could actually, I was actually getting suspicious of my own boredom <laughs> during labour. I was like, this is kind of, I'm, I'm having conversations with people who were coming into the room and I'm like, surely this should be a little bit more intense. And then he came back in and dove back down there and checked and I was only one and a half centimetres dilated. So then I felt, oh, okay, well, this is not, you know, going forward the way that as quickly as I'd like. And so at that point, you know, it was Sunday night and I think he had already told me that he'd delivered about six babies that weekend and had not slept much. And I felt like I was at the tail end of his service for the weekend. So he decided to induce me. And at that time, he would also give me an epidural um, to manage the pain of the induction. So I was hooked up to the Sintocin drip and had an epidural at the same time, which we had to get in because the anaesthetist was going home for the day. Um, so we, he got the anaesthetist in to do that. And then, um, and then for the next couple of hours, I was probably like dilating away quite quickly, but you know, it was pain-free because I was numb from the waist down. And then when the midwife came in to check how I was progressing, she said, right, you're 10 centimetres dilated, it's time to push. And I was like, what? <laughs> I hadn't felt a thing. I was there eating lollies and watching TV as all of this, as the induction was, was going forward. And then she said, yep, time to get to work. And um, so she was kind of bossing us around and um, telling me how to push, which was which a really strange feeling when you can't feel anything from the waist down and you're being told how to push a baby out. Um, so she said, okay, you've got to back off the epidural, the, the pain relief. So stop administering it now because I had a top-up administer. And so I could start to feel the contractions and then, and then time them with that. And um, it wasn't really, it wasn't working properly. The, the whole thing was is that the baby was in a posterior position. So she wasn't going to descend down naturally anyway. And, um, and then after, you know, two hours of trying to push, the doctor came back in with his vacuum or um, Ventus delivery apparatus and he said, I'm just going to pull this baby out. So <laughs> this was probably the point where things started to go downhill very quickly. Um, and he attached the vacuum to the baby's head and as he pulled the vacuum out, 
part of the skin from her scalp was removed with the vacuum and her heart rate just dropped very quickly. And I just remember very clearly the look on his face of actual terror <laughs> that he, the only words he said after that when he pulled it out was code green. And code green in the system is an emergency call for everybody go to theatre because there's an impending death situation of either the mother or the baby. Um, and by that point, I had no epidural left, so the pain was excruciating. And I was rushed to theatre um, to a different hospital and arrived into theatre. It was all just kind of like you're in an episode of ER, like just <laughs> feels really surreal when you're being like ran down the corridor on a, on a bed. Arriving into theatre and getting transferred onto the table and there was an anaesthetist at my right shoulder who was topping me up with um, medication. And then as the surgeon came in, as the obstetrician came in um, to do the emergency C-section, uh, he was preparing me on the table and he put his hands on my belly and I could feel them, they were really cold. And I thought, well, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to feel that. And then he was, looking around the room and everyone was in their positions and he had the scalpel and then he decided um, to start cutting and I felt it. And I yelled out to him and I said, I can feel it. And, and um, it was something, it was more like, fuck. <laughs> it, was, it was more something like that. But he looked up and paused and just looked at the anaesthetist and said, oh, what did you give her? And I can't remember what she said behind the masks and everything, but I didn't get a spinal block. It was like a top up of um, what I had initially, but the epidural had failed. So it wasn't working, but the danger and the fear of losing the baby was too much that he said, I can't wait. I have to get this baby out. And so he proceeded to cut me open without any anesthetic. And um, it was at that moment that I was being restrained on the table and the anaesthetist was saying Tina look at me look at me in the eyes and trying to manage my blood pressure which was going through the roof and my husband meanwhile sitting behind me just watching it and witnessing all of this unfold and he kept saying is my wife going to be okay and no one would answer him and everyone's focus was just trying to get this baby out and um and at that point because the pain it just felt it was so intense having this surgery without any anesthetic that feeling the hands inside of your body and the rummaging around trying to pull the baby out. Um, I just wanted to check out at that point. Like I felt like that it was kind of drowning me under and I had like an out of body experience. I think my spirit just wanted to leave my body at that point. And I remember it being as, and I think in hindsight it was like an awakening because my spirit, came out of the body and I could see myself and I was witnessing what was happening to me in disbelief. Um, but at the same time, I knew that I had to be around for this baby. This baby needs me. And I remember digging my fingernails into the palms of my hands, trying to stay awake so I wouldn't lose consciousness because it was getting really close to blacking out. And, um, and at that point, he finally pulled the baby out 
and I just remembered this wave of um, grace come over me as I saw this beautiful child and it was like the miracle was there and they took her away very quickly and I was left just kind of what's happening and then the drugs kicked in at that point and this sort of morphine <laughs> washed over me and I couldn't feel anything um, except the fact that I'd had this baby and she was alive and she was okay and they put her cheek next to mine and I looked at her head and it was all bruised um, all the way from her forehead down her face and there was no skin on her scalp because the vacuum had ripped it off so she was bleeding but she looked really peaceful and her eyes there was something really angelic about her even though she'd experienced so much pain um, herself and yeah that connection that mother child connection just hit me over the head like like the miracle does you know all time stops still and um at that moment i was born as a mother and i felt incredibly grateful that she was alive um and then from that point on for the next couple of days, I was in a real drug haze. So they ramped up my meds so that I would not remember <laughs> what happened. And so the first couple of days post-birth in hospital were very hazy. And then um, as I was coming out of that drug haze, uh, about day three in hospital, um, I was becoming more alert and I came you know, back to the real world, if you like. And I suppose um, the first thing I felt was, where am I? I feel really unsafe. And the trauma from the birth, um, there was no sort of, there's no kind of follow-up as to, oh, well, let's really look after this woman's emotional health because what she's been through isn't normal. <laughs> so I was just expected to carry on, breastfeed the baby, you know, do all the things and just get on with it. I have a healthy baby. I should be grateful. Um, but my first reaction in the hospital was, was I couldn't trust anyone and I just felt like the environment was unsafe and I started managing and controlling everything around me um, to the point where <laughs> I was starting to fill out my own patient notes. So the clipboard that sits at the end of the bed, um, I would pick it up and, and I'd noticed there were gaps and spaces where there should be writing and I started to fill in all of these gaps and my husband's saying to me what are you doing stop doing that and I'm like but no one else is doing it and I became like my own doctor like I was managing myself because I was too scared that no one else was going to do it for me like no one else was looking after me properly so I became attached to the clipboard and actually had it next to my bed <laughs> and then I would tell him to take the baby down to the nursery and I would be there doing the work, like taking notes. And like, that was like my baby for in the hospital. And a very classic sign of PTSD really is when we try to control our environment. That feels scary. Um, so nobody picked up on that. But um, once I went home and left the hospital, I just treated motherhood really like a job. Um, it was, I was very controlling and everything was very rigid in how I managed the baby. So like the schedule and everything, like I'd put timers on my phone when the next feed was. And um, it just became like, 
my new sort of career, I suppose. I'm just going to treat this like I'm going to work. And I'd get up at the same time and, you know, and I'd get frustrated when the baby wasn't sticking to the schedule. And um, <laughs> it was just like, how dare you? <laughs> Not lunchtime yet. Um, and, yeah, I found it very difficult to be out in public with the baby um, and I couldn't quite ever relax. So it's quite normal, I suppose, for first-time mothers to feel that anxiety, but I'm, I may have taken it to another level <laughs> because no one was even allowed to hold the baby. So, um, you know, people would say, oh, can I have a cuddle? And, and I've, I'd be reluctant to hand her over. And the times when I did, she would just scream and hate, couldn't handle being separated from me either. So we both had this trauma anxiety going on and we were over dependent on each other um, which was really interesting and um, about four months in when she was just starting to do all the cute smiles and you know reach for things and roll over um, I found out I was pregnant again and <laughs> I was like oh really um, and so in terms of processing the first birth experience I didn't really have time to because I felt pregnant so quickly and mind you I don't even remember having sex and I don't know how that happened <laughs> because the I was so conception yeah I was so sleep deprived I'm like how did you get it in and what when did we do that and I was just like completely bamboozled over it and anyway he's like oh yeah remember that night and I'm like no, no. and um <laughs> so I was yeah I was pregnant and this was happening again and I was getting back on the, the bandwagon to have another baby. Um, wow. And it was just like now I had a, a four-month-old and I was pregnant and I was due 12 months after the birth of the first baby and I went back to my obstetrician, um, which you... The same which was one? My, no, it was my actual obstetrician who would have been at the first birth but wasn't because it was Sunday night. So I went to him... And I said, he said, I didn't expect to see you here so soon. And I said, yeah, me either. And uh, we spoke about what happened the first time. And he said, we're going to make sure that this second birth is completely different. Um, he made a commitment that he promised to be there for this birth and that it would be in a different hospital altogether, different staff, um, and we would have an elective C-section at 37 weeks. So his plan was not to um, allow me to go into labour naturally, that it would all be controlled and pain-free. And being so vulnerable as a mother, I just agreed because, again, I put all my trust in the medical system. Even though it let me down the first time, I did it again the second time. Um, I didn't feel, you know, I didn't have any sense of, being able to be empowered through this experience of having the baby. I just thought, oh, it will just be a clinically managed medicalised event. Like it wasn't anything um, except for that. And, uh, yeah, so the second birth was completely pain-free. Um, and, and I remember it and it was really nice. Um, so I think that was the right decision. But yeah, all those um, 
years have gone by since and uh, only now I've, you know, processed it and healed it and can talk about it. But um, um, I'm discovering that many women have had traumatic births and it's something that we should share um, because we're all meeting our fear by doing that and not letting it live inside the body. The biggest thanks to Things for Kids, my awesome podcast partner that's supporting this episode of Mamas on a Mission. You know those days when you just need to get out of the house with the kids, but can't think of where to go? Get activity inspo from thingsforkids.com.au. It's an online directory that shows you all of the nearby places to explore. I'm talking parks, playgrounds, play centers, classes, kids-friendly cafes, and more. You just pop in your postcode and an interactive map will show you all the places that are right under your nose. It's a great parenting tool to discover your local area with your kids and even better to help you avoid getting cabin fever. There's lots of other nifty uses too, like when you're meeting up halfway with a friend for a play date and not sure where to go, or if you've just moved into a new neighborhood but it's also perfect for when you're road tripping with the fam and need to do an impromptu stopover. If the kiddies are getting restless in the car, jump onto thingsforkids.com.au and find out what kid-friendly places are nearby. Don't know the postcode? That's okay. Just select the detect your location option. If you're a mum with children aged 0 to 10, add thingsforkids.com.au to your favourites list and follow Things for Kids AU on Instagram and Facebook for Kids Activity Inspo. Yeah, and like I'm just devastated to hear your story. And when I read it, I was like, I had tears and I just had tears just then as you you retold it. Um, But I think what I found just so, I guess, horrifying was the treatment that you had afterwards as well um and also how you talked about and I love this line in your book I I highlighted it was the compensation I was seeking was to simply be treated like a human not a liability um yeah so what what was the hospital's reaction so afterwards um very much silence um I asked my obstetrician at the six-week follow-up if I could talk to someone about it, I said, is there anyone who's been through something similar to me that I can have a conversation with, that I can debrief? And I just wanted to pick it apart and talk about it. And he just looked at me and said, nobody's been through what you've been through. Yeah. And that was it. And there were no support systems in place in the hospital um, to follow up. I mean, I still get surprised to hear that even to this day, that that's not something that's on their checklist. <laughs> like <Yeah. clears throat> he says at six weeks, oh, you're all good to have sex. And I'm like, <laughs> awesome, because that's exactly what I feel like doing. Um, and that's their almost, you know, they check yeah. your physical body, but they don't assess your spiritual or emotional health. Right. Yeah, mm. it's it's such a shame and something I definitely noticed there was a lack of too. I remember going before I even tried to have a second baby, I went back to the doctor and said, oh, I think I need to see someone before we start trying because I'm, you know, a little bit scared about it, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, do you want to see an, an obstetrician or a gynecologist? And I was like, no, not, not a physical. Yeah. Like I, I think I need to see a psychologist because 
I'm actually quite scared about getting pregnant because of the birth. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. such a big, long build up to an event that especially if you go through a traumatic first birth, you know, that it can really shape the way, uh, you know, you become a mother on, and the rest of your life, it's something that does, it does stay with you and, and has such a profound effect on, on those really important, um, first few bonding months. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And the whole point about <clears throat> wanting to feel like a human and not a liability yeah. is, um, you know, was my response when they sent me a letter in the mail, which was a letter of apology from the <laughs> hospital. <laughs> a very carefully worded apology. Carefully, yeah. And I was just like, huh, it just joined the pile of bills on the kitchen counter. It mm. um, didn't mean anything to me. That's not what I wanted. Um, you know, some people said, oh, why don't, why didn't you go down the path of medical negligence? And I was just too exhausted. I had two babies and I didn't have the emotional energy or time to go down that path. And I didn't want to either. I'm, I don't have it out for, um, you know, legal, um, what do you call that word? Um, compensation but the compensation yeah I was really looking for was just a human connection and 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 witnessing and acknowledging that yeah what you went through was really hard and um but you're going to be okay and what can we do to support you like that's all it has to be absolutely yeah 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 and Another part that you really touch on in your story, as you're going through processing and trying to put all of this back together, um, you develop an illness uh, and as a result, chronic pain, and then you become addicted to pain relief medicine. So can you share, because I think, you know, often we have this idea of the type of person that becomes addicted to some type of drug um, yeah. and, and it doesn't look like what you look like. It's not a mum yeah. too. Um, so can you share, how did that all unfold and what did it feel to realise that you had an addiction? Oh, well... The first uh, time I had opioids was following the birth of, um, you know, the first birth. So often, you know, if you have a C-section, it's very regular and normal for a doctor to prescribe tramadol or whatever opioid it is to go home with for the surgical pain. Um, so he, you know, I was um, discharged from the hospital with the tramadol and I started taking it as instructed. And I realised that gee, I'm really absorbing this drug well. I really like it. Not just It's not just taking away my physical discomfort, but it's also making me feel less afraid. And I noticed that it was um, making me feel more confident, giving me more energy to do the housework around the house, to see, to feel okay to accept visitors into the home. Um, and it, what it was really doing, it was numbing my emotional fear from the... From the you know from the birth and so my first exposure to the drug was yeah I really like this and it works for me and I finished the script or the course and you know forgot about it until the next birth and then I again was sent home with the tramadol and this time I said can I have an extra script so this time I had two lots and um, you know once again when I finished the last pill I was kind of sad. I was like, oh, there goes my coping mechanism, you know. And then um, 
yeah, a few years went by. Um, I fast forward to, you know, five years. I've been back in the workforce, um, juggling two small children at daycare, doing all the pickups and drop-offs. Back into the hospital system, I worked as a cardiac technician um, in hospitals, so working with cardiologists, um, inserting pacemakers and defibrillator implants. So it was a pretty high-pressure job as well. Um, you had to be really switched on. You couldn't forget certain stock and things when you're in theatre and you need to hand over um, implants, like you had to have your wits about you. Um, so I continued doing that job, but as I was juggling the work thing and the mother thing, my health was starting to decline um, and my immune system was getting worse and worse and I started picking up more and more colds and viruses and anything the kids got brought home, I would pick up. Um, and there came a point where I became really chronically unwell with shingles. So my downfall or the chronic pain condition came out of that infection and the shingles just basically stopped me in my tracks completely. I couldn't work for months. Um, it hit me, the rash hit me right in the back of my body in between my shoulder blades at the back of the heart. And, um, and I developed what's called post-herpetic neuralgia, which is um, the chronic pain condition that continues on in the nerve fibres once the rash is healed. And for the treatment, I was given tramadol. <laughs> so the GP who I went to said, well, we have to manage the pain because shingles is um, it's a very painful condition that's really, really well known you know, for the level of pain. So she wanted to get the pain under control in the first instance. So I was given steroids and tramadol and um, another neuropathic pain reliever. And um, I couldn't work because... I had to wear lead aprons in theatre, so I couldn't wear the lead aprons. So my role at work had to change out of a clinical environment to a more project-based work. And, um, and I went on taking those pills um, every single day um, for years. And when I realised I had a problem, what happens is after about a year of taking opioids every day, you develop a resistance to them so your your body develops a tolerance to them and then you all of a sudden you need to take more to feel the effects or to cover the pain so I was taking more and more and I was running out of my script um, early and until I had to go back to my doctor there might be two weeks where I would be without pills and then I'd panic and go shit I'm running out of pills um but I'm too ashamed to go back to my GP and say, I need more. So I'm going to go doctor shopping instead. <laughs> so what I did, and this is when I really realized that I had a problem, was I started going doctor shopping and visiting GP clinics all over town, um, asking for tramadol to, and the script to be refilled. And um, I got caught out. So one time... Um, I went back to my regular GP and she said, I know you've been doctor shopping and here's a referral to a specialist and I can't help you anymore. <laughs> so um, at that point, you know, the system in, often in GP land, they're given like seven minute windows to consult their patients and I had a big problem. I, yeah. It was a very complicated problem and her inability to solve the problem or know how to manage it 
resulted in her just referring me on to someone. And so I felt quite, I felt rejected, alone and quite hopeless. And um, I also felt like my children were seeing their mum just deteriorate into a mess and I would have to drag them around to so many doctor's clinics. And then one day my daughter said to me, to me oh, mummy, which pharmacy are we going to today? Oh. And I just, my, it was like being stabbed in the heart and I was like, oh, my God, um, she's, this is not how I want to be seen by my own children. Um, so that, that was just shame getting stronger inside of me um, and knowing that I had a problem but I didn't know how to solve it. And the solution came one night, which was actually a big scare. I, um, I took my normal, you know, dose of, of opioids and I went to bed and went to sleep. But what happened was, um, and they call this respiratory depression and it's how the breath or the lungs stop working when you have a buildup of narcotics in the system. And I went to bed and I stopped breathing and I woke up gasping for air and I almost overdosed and most accidental overdoses to prescription opioids happen when people are asleep. They just don't wake up. They'll go to bed one night and they just won't wake up. And um, that's why we have such a high death rate in this country of um, opioid overdose because people don't understand the risks. And lucky, luckily for me, I took a big breath and I woke up and I was terrified because I thought, oh my God, I was one breath away from dying. Um, one breath away from my husband waking up next to a corpse. Like, <laughs> I have to be here for my children. And um, at that point, it was about five o'clock in the morning, I went upstairs. Actually, I went into this room <laughs> and I just fell to my knees and I had reached the end of myself and I just hit rock bottom and I just started to pray. And I was like, help me. That was just my words, just I don't know how to handle this anymore. I'm handing it over to you. This burden is too big for me to carry. I can't do this on my own. Just tell me what to do. If you don't do anything, God, whatever, whoever's up there listening, then I'm just going to be on these drugs for the rest of my life. And um, a few hours later, I was just going about my day and um, this name popped into my head. It was Paloma. And I was kind of going, what, what is that? It was like a download of information into my mind. Paloma. It kept on getting louder and louder. I'm like, who's Paloma? And I thought, I know, I'll get onto Google. So I started Googling Paloma, Melbourne. Like I was thinking doctor, health, like putting all these words in to try and create a story out of this name. And what came up was there was a Paloma, a Dr. Paloma, in South Melbourne, in my suburb, who um, was an addiction specialist. And there was a mobile number and it was a Saturday and I rang the number and, I, and she answered and she said, who is this? <laughs> and I just said, um, hi, my name's Tina and uh, I need your help. And she was like, right, well, I'll help you if you come in on Monday, but you have to bring your husband with you. And I was like, 
oh shit because then it meant I had to tell him everything and you know I hid a lot from him and he didn't realize the extent of the issue but um that was the turning point because once you share your shame with someone that you trust all of a sudden that burden is lifted from you and he could support me and this doctor was just a miracle she knew exactly what to do to get me off the pills um, we started from that very first day and she put me on a low dose buprenorphine patch which is a slow release patch that you wear for seven days which is also an opioid but what it does is it stops the pill popping cycle so it stopped me from having to manage myself medically every day and think when am I going to take my next pill two hours three hours like it sent I was going crazy you know mentally so it stopped that cycle and gave me the space to be able to start healing myself from the inside out instead of trying to mask the problem from the outside in. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, <laughs> incredible. Um, and so your husband, when you shared that with him, what was his reaction? How much did he know? Um, he knew I was taking the pills, but he didn't realise how much and how often. Yeah. And um, I just did such a good job at hiding it from him. But he, he was, he's like my rock and it just brought us closer together and he didn't judge me. He just said, okay, we're just going to do what we have to do. Yeah. And he just came with me to the appointments and it was, I think he kind of enjoyed it because Paloma gave him the, the rights to hold the tramadol in, in case of an emergency. Um, so he became like the gatekeeper and I think he's a control freak. So he kind of enjoyed that. (laughs) (laughs) But I never, I never had to use it. Um, And yeah, he, he just was very steady throughout it. Um, Yeah. I think I'm really lucky to have someone that didn't freak out or, you know, um, or do anything drastic, but just, just to be there. Yeah, yeah, support. It's just support. It's so yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the title of your book, Mother's Medicine. Um, yeah. It's really, you know, you're talking about the birth of your intuition. Do you want to go into a bit more? What does that mean? And, you know, why did you title the book that? Yeah. Um, well, I believe that our intuition is our medicine. So, um, you know, your intuition, it's designed to keep you alive. It's designed to keep you healthy and balanced. It's like your, your life support system. Um, and it was my intuition that saved my life, really, that night that I almost overdosed and I, I surrendered to it and I opened, it up, opened myself up to a higher power and it was my intuition that led me to the answers. Um, and I really believe that women in particular um, block this part of themselves and instead of giving our power away to other people it's about finding the power from the inside and realizing that you are the expert of your own body nobody else can tell you what to do with your body we are the experts and we know what's what's best Um, and that's really about empowering your own your own health and and mother's medicine means understanding that your intuition, it comes from your heart space. So your 
heart is your power zone and that's got the biggest electromagnetic field of the body. Um, it's our biggest sensing feeling organ and it is the field, it creates the field from which we download the data and interpret our intuition. Um, so I suppose because of my training in cardiology and as a heart technician, I'm now doing this like different work with the heart, <laughs> which is the invisible part of the heart strength and, um, and really honing in on our intuitive power as our medicine. Yeah. Wow. Um, I love all the the stories and stuff that you have scattered throughout as well. Um, and, you know, when people pick it up, I won't let you, I won't get you to explain all of them, but the one about like the broken heart and, um, you know, you talk about so many, like even different animals and the, and the way they respond when they become pregnant and when they have their babies. So uh, I really love that. But the other thing I love is the way that you've also scattered uh, different yoga poses throughout the story as well and explaining how important they are and, and, you know, how they can really help mums. But that's because obviously to you through this process that you, um, discovered how important yoga is in your life and it played such a really big role in your self-healing and your self-acceptance. So do you want to explain how that sort of all unfolded? Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm the first person that will say yoga saved my life. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people have used it as a healing modality and, um, I stepped on the yoga mat for the first time and it became like a refuge. It became a safe place where I could just unravel myself and not feel judged or hurried or um, like I didn't need to pretend or anything, but I could just be me and be accepted. And this, you know, little square footage of mat just was like a magic carpet to me and, um, and it's where I activated my heart centre. So it's how I learned how to reverse this relationship of power um, instead of placing, as an addiction does, instead of placing our power outside of our body in power targets or objects or people or drugs or food or whatever it is, um, it taught me how to activate the heart space um, by uh, cultivating stillness as well as silence. Um, and surrender and I think those three things um, are such uh, just embody what yoga really is um, to be able to listen to your intuition to learn the art of not just yoga but meditation to hear and to shut out external distractions and noise and everything that takes our attention away from being present with our bodies and to understanding and learning the language of your intuitive body. Um, and that's how yoga can offer that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you quit your job and you became a yoga teacher. I know. Oh my God. <laughs> it's such a cliche. I'm like such a middle-aged white woman quits her job and becomes a yoga teacher and a wellness expert. Um, but yeah, it was just the path that was yeah. for me. And it was perfect. Um, so I went into work and resigned. And five days later, I left and never went back. And I don't think they were surprised. I think they obviously knew, like, the hardship I'd been through as well. So they were, so, okay, 
she's gone and then I could start my new life <laughs> and I really just slowed everything down it just gave me permission to design a life that was slow and simple and uncomplicated I can wear flat shoes all the time bare <laughs> feet you know yoga pants and um and just be there for my children as well which was one of the things I that's part of my values is just to be able to pick them up from school and do really simple things. So yeah, just stopped the rush, the mad rush around. Yeah. Mm. And I, and I love that. And I think that's a great example that you, you're never too old to change the direction of your life. It doesn't have to be, if you're not happy with how things are, you can absolutely make those changes and you'll, you'll land on your feet, your bare feet. Yeah. yeah you'll, yes. <laughs> you'll land on the soles of your feet. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, so with writing a book, it, it's not an easy task to do. Otherwise I'm sure everyone would do it. But when you're writing about yourself, you're writing about such a traumatic experience and also the people that you're interacting with in your life. What, what is that process like? And if there's anyone out there that's considering wanting to share their story, do you have any tips around that? Yeah, definitely. So if you kind of feel like you've got this story inside of you, which is how I felt, um, and you're kind of walking around in your life going, I really feel like I have a story to tell. Um, and it won't go away. So if you're already sensing that, just be prepared that you're going to, you're going to express it at some point. Because when you don't, and this is what happened to me, I knew I had a story in me and I had come off all the medication and I was really healing myself on many levels, but something still wasn't right. Like I was walking around and I was still kind of really confused and foggy in the head and my energy was low and I was like, what's wrong with me? Like I couldn't work out what it was. So I did what I often do is I jumped on a plane and went on a yoga retreat and thought I'm just going to work this out. I don't know, you know, what's going on. And I got to the, the retreat and within the first day I just had this lightning bolt moment of, oh, my God, I need to write a book. I need to start writing. And I spent the whole retreat writing and, you know, the first chapter just poured out of me and I came back home and I said to my husband he was like how was it and I said it was great I started writing a book I'm going to write a book and he's like that's great babe can you pass the salt like <laughs> you know how you just kind of you're so excited and you announce it and the people closest to you are like yeah whatever um she's going to write a book now and um, anyway he kind of worked out that I was furious pretty soon because he'd come home from work and I'd just be hammering away at the laptop um, you know, I'm pretty sure I gave my kids baked beans for dinner very often <laughs> and put them in front of the TV for a good few months as I had to get this out of me. But um, it was really, the, so the book, it was a result of me saying yes to my intuition um, and just being the vessel for it to come through um, because it only took me four months to write, which is a really short amount of time. Um, and under a year to edit and produce. So the whole thing was quick. In fact, it was kind of like a pregnancy, kind of like, a, yeah, it was kind of like a nine-month like birth experience again. Um, and I actually have this quote I want to read because if you are thinking about writing a book, um, and especially if you've had trauma in your life or pain, 
it's like you write the pain away and it's so powerful. It's obviously cathartic and everyone knows that writing can be cathartic. Um, but if you have, have not read Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, she says, creativity is a crushing chore and a glorious mystery. The work wants to be made and it wants to be made through you. And I think that's just so true because no one can write your story like you can. Everyone has a unique story and all you need to do is say yes and be the vessel for it to come through. Um, and don't listen to the voices that say, who, who am I to write a book, you know, um, because that's just, you know, your pesky little ego, which, you know, is afraid all the time. So I'd just say, do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just start. Just start. And I would just have to write something every day, even if it was just a paragraph. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter how much or, you know, I didn't have the luxury of being able to sit for six hours a day and just write. It was like chunks of time wherever I could grab them. But in between kids dropping off, picking up activities, I'd just be like, oh, that's a good idea. And I'd, I'd even write notes in my phone when I was on the road, wherever I could, whenever I got the download, the information or the story, I'd just make a note of it. And yeah, it was just about piecing all of that together. Yeah. And what, what's the reaction been like from people that are close to you or people that have read your book? just overwhelmingly supportive um i've been really surprised that it's quite you're so vulnerable when you're putting your story out there that you know there's a lot of fear that you have to move through a lot of um natural resistance to being seen and um surprisingly it's been really amazing um yeah and i feel so free because i've got nothing to hide anymore like my story's out there and this is me and this is who I am and hopefully it will help other women who are suffering in silence. Um, and because it's the book that I wanted to read when I was at my lowest point and I was looking everywhere online at bookstores for a similar story. Um, so I think that's how powerful storytelling can be because it really helps to heal people to know that they're not alone. Yeah, absolutely. And it comes back to that point when you asked your doctor, uh, can I speak to someone who's been through something similar? And he said there hadn't been, but we know yeah. that's so not true. Yeah, exactly. That's just so many women have been through the same thing. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, just about connecting to it back to that community again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess maybe it's something that that's not filtering through sometimes to perhaps the like medical professions or, you know, to the hospital, they're not getting that feedback that once, you know, I guess once you leave, you're just out the door and you describe in your book about when you saw the original um, obstetrician that delivered your first baby and how I didn't even recognize you. Like there was, there's no, there's no connection. There was no, you know, relationship there and, and you just walked past him and he, and he had no idea who you were, but he'd had such a profound effect on your life. Yeah, I know. Well, he never showed his face to me again um, after the birth. So I never saw him um, or got to any closure with him. But I did, yes, run into him in hospitals through just being at work myself and passing, you know, passing him in the hallway. And um, the moment I saw him, my heart rate just increased and that whole fear response came back again. And I looked at him and I realised he didn't know who I was. Yeah. So, 
I was too scared to speak or say anything. But, um, yeah, I don't think he realised no, at all. No, that's sad. Um, and so I, I love... So you're, you're a yoga teacher and you've started your own business, Restore a Yoga Mum, and now you've written your book, Mother's Medicine. So what, how is it that you want to help mums and, and why is this so important to you? Oh, this is my favourite topic to talk about because I'm so passionate now about empowering women to understand their intuitive health and to know that they can become their own healers. And what I've noticed over the years teaching yoga is that women are really willing to go deeper. And yoga is like the safe space and refuge for us. Um, but there are opportunities for us to know ourselves on a deeper level. So I have retrained myself. I went back to school and um, got a qualification as a medical intuitive, um, which felt very natural for me to do with my medical experience, but also um, the, you know, being the intuitive guide so that I can help women um, find the root cause of what's driving their pain, whether that's physical pain or emotional pain. Um, I work with this formula, which says pain times resistance equals suffering. <laughs> so um, when I work with women, I remove the, the root cause of the resistance and that resistance on the outside for most people looks like your addictions or your cravings or the things that you, you use to soothe yourself or distract or escape all the pain. Um, but on the inside, that resistance is fear. So I work with women to um, unlock their subconscious fear and identify what that subconscious fear is. Um, a lot of the times it comes from a place of I am not worthy, I'm not lovable or I'm not enough. And I, um, I find out where that is sitting in the body. So subconscious fear lives in the energetic body, in the chakra system. Um, and I tune in to find out where it might be affecting your physical health. And then we work at releasing it. And um, we do all of that uh, at a subconscious level. And it has very profound effects. Um, so that's what I'm passionate about now to, to help, you know, deliver the message, but also to understand that once you remove the block, the fear, then you're open to, to being able to heal yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, so you're definitely a mama on a mission. Like you're the, the absolute definition of that. Oh. I love that. So now you, your girls are a bit older. What's your personal yeah. experience of motherhood like now, having been through all of that? And what are your current challenges and surprises? Um, well, I'm actually really amazed at how well they've turned out because I look at them, they're now eight and nine, and I think, oh, my gosh, they're okay. Like even with all the shit I've been through, they, were, they turned out okay and I'm so proud of them and now the challenges have become, I can't tell them what to do. You know, when they get to this age, it's like, <laughs> oh, I can't tell them what to do because firstly, they don't listen to me. And secondly, I'm just mum and I'm a dag. And um, so I just try to become the demonstration for them. And, you know, they see me every day doing my practice, my meditation and yoga, and I prioritise that above all else. And they might not, copy it or you know they might not strive to do it themselves but they are noticing and 
I think as mothers, if we can just demonstrate what self-love and self-acceptance and self-care looks like, then our children will learn that. Um, yeah, and they won't be afraid of themselves. So I think that is what I'm trying to <laughs> demonstrate. Um, not every day is, you know, is, is great and easy. Yeah. But, you know, we can just get on the mat no matter what, um, regardless of how we're feeling. Yeah. Um, just, show, just show up. Just show up for yourself um, because that's the best, you know, vaccination you can give your kids against fear is just to love yourself. Yeah, and they absorb so much more than we think they do, don't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they take it all in, yeah, and as we know, it can it can have a, a lasting effect. So, yeah, that's so great. Um, I was going to say, do they do they join you in doing the doing yoga and and some of the practices? Also, um, they're not really into it. They well, I actually do send them to yoga every week to a, <laughs> a kids yoga studio. So maybe they'll listen to a, another teacher that's yeah. not me. Um, but they they always ask for a meditation at night time oh. before bed. So I I guide them before they go to sleep and yeah. do visualizations and things. And that's yeah, they love it. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, we've started doing uh, with my son uh, taking deep breaths, you know, when he's very upset or sort of having a, a tantrum, which is really his way of demonstrating that he's frustrated. And so we've started doing deep breaths. And when I first did it, he just, you know, wouldn't do it. <laughs> um, yeah. But now he does it and he, and he really enjoys it. Like he'll say, okay, we need to take breaths now. And I'm like, okay. And sometimes <laughs> we both need to do it together because we're both yeah. frustrated. Um, but it's amazing how it can really change the situation. So, I mm. love, you know, just those little things that they can, they can carry on and, and learn how to sort of, you know, manage their feelings. Yeah. And yeah, and the other little trick I learned the other day, when you go for long drives, um, put, you, there's, you know, there's chanting, there's music that's, you know, chanting and devotional music, but kids actually really love it because it's very repetitive yeah. and it's really calming. Um, and you can find some good ones, you know, these days that are nice to listen to and that puts them into a really calm state when you're cruising around. Um, instead of putting on the Taylor Swift or whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the annoying pop, popsy music. Um, I'm like, no, no, mummy's chants are on now. Sorry, don't touch it. <laughs> Just cool. little, yeah, in, like our, in our car, we have the rule, whoever's driving gets to pick what's on. And so I'm always oh, listening yeah. to podcasts. I don't, it's always me. So it's great. And um, until they start to drive me around later. <laughs> I'm always putting on podcasts. I'm like, if my kids don't turn out to be entrepreneurs, I don't know what will happen. <laughs> I know. I actually had, um, I had Brene Brown's audio book on the other day and they were like, and she swears a lot. Oh, you know, she? she's, well, she's like Southern Texan and she drops, yeah. like she says shit. This, and the kids are kind of like, oh, that's really funny. But they love her. They're like, that grenade's really funny. So I'm sure the self-help movement is in good hands with the next generation. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and so a while ago on Motherhood Melbourne, you actually wrote a really great article about why mums need to go on retreats. And this is something that you love to do. So can you, share a bit about what, what sort of retreats um, you go on or you've been on and what is it that you love about them? 
I think I just love, well, I love traveling. So I find a lot of inspiration when I get out into new environments and cultures. Um, And I also just love vacating my ordinary life because, you know, the mundane and the routine can squash you after a while. And it's all about coming back to the soul. So the soul thrives on new new environments and um and giving yourself and privileging it some some attention because it doesn't get any attention when we're stuck in a schedule or meeting the needs of everyone else um you know and i always learn something about myself on retreats and pilgrimages and they um they're like little moments of self-discovery and i obviously i wrote the book because i went to a retreat Um, because I had the space to let the intuition speak to me. Um, And, you know, if you're you're always feeling like you're rushing around and you're doing the same old thing, um, at least give yourself a week, a year to to just privilege your own soul and your creativity and what it it wants, what wants to be expressed through you. Um, So my next pilgrimage is in September and I'm going to hike through Spain on a yoga and hiking retreat, um, which is the Camino Trail. I don't know if you've heard of that. Um, Yeah, you know, centuries old, um, traditionally like a a Catholic pilgrimage, but now it's become very mainstream and, you know, people do it for all sorts of reasons. But it's nice to be able to combine um, nature and hiking with the yoga as well. So you get to see lots as you move through the journey. Um, Yeah. So that's my passion. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. And how, how often do you go? Do you go one every year or you do it quite frequently? Um, well, I, I host one a year, so mm. I'll teach at one and then I'll do one a year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So usually like a, a 10 days or something for yeah. both of them. Yeah. Oh, lovely. And um, I should link to that article as well, because you talk about the benefits of that, of, of doing that. And, you know, there is yeah. a lot of guilt sometimes around leaving our kids. Yeah. That's what we see it as like, I've left my kids, you know, even though they're with a perfectly capable adult that can look after them. <laughs> yeah. And it's really good for them to have the time right. with other family members. It's, it's really, um, you know, if you, if you're kind of robbing them of that experience because of your own fear, then you're not giving them a chance to, to really grow new relationships outside of you. Um, I think it's really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to finish off just asking, what's a random fun fact about you? (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about this. um, I would probably be that I only eat with a splork. Um, Ah. yeah I know it's really weird and random but I like to eat all my meals out of bowls and I find that um, I need to stab the food as well as scoop it and then because the slork is like a cross between a fork and a spoon and it just it's such an awesome utensil like it just covers all bases and I just when someone gives me an ordinary fork at a restaurant I'm like oh do you have a slork like I have to ask no that's great and that makes so much sense I honestly every night my husband you know he gets the cutlery out and he says do you want a fork or a spoon and I'm always like oh I don't know because I kind of want both but yeah that makes that makes sense I need to get a fork yeah so you have to pack one in your suitcase when you oh. travel too I find okay. yeah. <laughs> have, have a backup yeah <laughs> or in the handbag and just yeah oh that is a very random fun fact I, I, I love it <laughs> yeah 
Oh, and just to wrap things up, if people want to connect with you, whether it's, you know, to come along to one of your yoga sessions or your retreats, or they want to read your book, where can they find you? Uh, my website, which is tinabruce.com.au. And you can order the book on the website um, as well as look at my other offerings, my yoga classes, um, my medicine readings and retreat information as well. Um, yeah, so that's my corner of the web that you can find me. Thanks a bunch for joining us. Let's chat further about this episode on Motherhood Melbourne, BC or Insta. For more info about my guest, the podcast, or my podcast partner, visit motherhoodmelbourne.com.au. If you loved this episode or the potty, please share the love by writing a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Okay, that's a wrap. Thanks for hanging out with me. 